And welcome to the socialworldpodcast.com. Your host is Dave Niven. Today's show is sponsored by David Niven Associates. Hello, welcome to Podcast 26. I'm Dave Niven, and this is the Social World Podcast. Now, today we're going to uh, present you with edited highlights of a fantastic conference that was held in Bristol a week or two ago. And it's basically focusing on uh, early intervention and the benefits of that and working with childhood trauma. And the edited highlights involve Jane Evans, Professor Lynn MacDonald and Dame Tessa Jowell. And they were the three speakers in the morning session. And we thought we'd give you the edited highlights of their talk, which was fascinating. Some of the feedback that we had from a packed audience, in fact, we had to turn people away. That was how good it was. Excellent, amazing, inspirational, extremely valuable and vital information, sharing of up-to-date knowledge, and the importance of spreading information regarding neuroscience across the professions. Brilliant feedback, and I'll give you some more of that later. This is my childhood, there will be no other. That was the title of the conference. And as I said, I'm going to feature three speakers Dame Tessa Jowell firstly, Professor Lynn MacDonald and then Jane Evans. But we're also going to intersperse them with their comments all the way through on different subject matters. So for the moment, we're going to start with Tessa Jowell, then Lynn MacDonald, then Jane Evans, and a little snippet from Jane at the end about um, how she uses particular uh, objects in the way that uh, she gets her word across, gets the message across. So here we go. Well, good afternoon, everybody. And um, it's, uh, it's a very kind introduction, David. And it's lovely to be working together again after all uh, this time. And can I thank you for inviting me to come and speak um, to your conference this afternoon? And uh, I very especially wanted to do this because, you know, this is an issue about which I am absolutely passionate and uh, as I move to stepping down from Parliament and look back over the last 23 years I think uh, it is this the power to alter the course of children's lives um, that still represents the greatest challenge and I'm going to start by saying um, my original work as you heard was with um, actually I started working with teenagers then I started working with um, middle years, specializing in four to eight. That, that's the program that's gone around the world. And then I read the new brain research and I said, oh my gosh, we have to do zero to three. And so everything I'm saying today is informed by this new brain research, which I know <clears throat> many of you have been reading and struggling with as well, and how to present it so it's accessible and how to use it with clients and service users those are challenges we're all facing now. Um, the work that I do, I'm big on sharing what I've learned about neuroscience and about attachment. Um, and I do that by my little friends who I'll hold up in a minute. I, I've now reduced all the neuroscience that I've grappled with to try and understand 
down to an explanation involving a meerkat, an elephant, and a monkey. And um, I take it at the moment I'm working with adolescents who are using aggression and threatening behaviour towards their parents. And I take them along and um, I give my explanation, which I'll give to you in a minute. And they're like, oh, I get that. I get that. So I'm not a terrible bad person. I just have a very hyperactive meerkat brain. So I do that with the parents as well. And I say, you know, from now on, you can have this dialogue about meerkats as opposed to badness and aggression and all those sorts of things. We can talk about soothing our meerkat. And they get that, and they can work with it, and off they go. I mean, not as perfectly as that, but you know what I mean? It's, it gives them something else to think about apart from the pain and the trauma and the sadness that I, I meet when I, 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 I find when I first meet them. Um, and then... So show, showing in our practice what, what we know and in our daily lives. You know, in our daily lives, we can do so much early intervention. All the work that I do is, is just basically brain work. I just talk about brains with young people and parents and how trauma affects the way that your brain operates and how that means that, you know, if the teacher comes across the room at you, that's why you flip out and jump off your chair. And then we work with ways of trying to calm the brain down. So hence my um, monkey, meerkat, elephant situation. Because I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get many teenagers. Some do. Some are really interested in um, neurons and dendrites and axons and stuff. But most not so much. <laughs> so I thought, right, I've got I've to do it in a way. And also I want to do this with three and four-year-olds and their parents and carers, and everyone to feel comfortable and okay with it. So I had a bit of a think after a, um, a session with a, a young person, and I thought, wow, so his survival brain is like a meerkat. Okay, so his survival brain, if, you, if you've ever seen um, a little troop of meerkats, there's always one that's on watch all the time for the troop. So scanning, scanning, scanning the horizon, looking for danger all the time. And... The joy for the troop is that they can change meerkats. So one meerkat doesn't have to have responsibility for keeping everyone safe all the time. But the children we work with, they've only got one meerkat. So even before they were born, their meerkat was very active and more active than it should be. Then they get born and the meerkat can't relax. So it's you know, experiencing a lot of stress and um, it, it can't just switch off as it needs to do. We're not designed to be on high alert 24-7. Think of yourselves when you're going through a period of really high anxiety that you, you, know, you have a deadline that you know it's unlikely you're going to meet or you think you're going to miss your plane or whatever it is. It makes you feel ill. It makes you feel ill. So we have a lot of very, very poorly meerkats out there and we need to get in early and help the poorly meerkats much, much sooner than we're doing now. So the next part of the brain I say to them is, um, is your memory. It's your emotional memory and learning brain. And that sits on top of your meerkat. That's where it should be. And that comes on board next so that you can start, when you're very little, you start to then have memories about how things feel. And that should sit really nicely most of the time on top of your meerkat. You know, if you're going to get run over by a truck, we need the meerkat to pop up and keep you safe. But the rest of the time, you know, we need the meerkat to be quite calm and quiet. Um, and, you know, 
just to be accessing all the memories around what's going on around us, how did that feel? And then last of all, it's very hard to do this with one hand, <laughs> on the top is your clever monkey brain, okay? So your clever monkey brain should sit on top of the busy meerkat, it should sit on top of your emotional memories and your learning brain, and the clever monkey brain should pretty much mostly get you through the day. So it's going to help you think, it's going to help you make judgments about things, plan things, work out consequences, be able to make friendships and get on with people. That's what we need our monkey brain for and it's great. And information flows all day long back and forth between our meerkat, elephant, monkey. Hopefully at the moment you're fairly relaxed and you're all using your monkey brains. Um, if suddenly a tiger came in the room, what would happen? That would happen. Probably that would happen, and we'd all be doing that. And that's, you know, that's how I show the children. I say the thing is that when something frightens you, and lots of things frighten you, which is not your fault, you don't have a monkey brain. Your monkey brain is gone. And you know, pretty much your elephant brain is gone as well. Dan Siegel explains it really well with a hand, but I like animals, so a hand was very good. And it's good because you've, you know, you've got one with you, but I just have to have them. <laughs> um, so, and now I talk to my young people and I talk to the parents all the time and we just talk about meerkats. So then we can go in and we work, work out ways to soothe the meerkat more. Okay, we need to soothe our meerkat. We don't want our meerkat to be on high alert because when our meerkat's on high alert, we have no monkey brain. We can't think, we can't make good choices. So that's the dialogue that I'm using in Hartcliffe with these um, aggressive uh, traumatized, sad young people and these distraught, um, depressed parents is we're just, we're just lightening it all up a bit in a respectful way and we're, we're talking about meerkats a lot and they get it, they get it and um, it's not complicated and you know, go use it, get yourself a, <laughs> a little troop of furry animals and, and take them around with you. And it was so nice that um... Tessa Jowell agreed to come back again that she and I had worked together in the past so this was just specially nice for me. And then we moved into a phase where Tessa and then Jane reflected on the crucial need for early intervention. And so I'd like to just begin by saying that in relation to early intervention there is a compelling need for action we cannot be in possession of the, the evidence of this strength and integrity and not see it as a call to action, challenging almost everything uh, that we do in relation to families and young children. The Millennium Cohort Study also provides uh, evidence on the importance of early intervention and in this study, Feinstein found that gaps in child development, that's educational attainment, language development, and so forth, by parental socioeconomic status, emerged as early as 22 months and appeared to widen by the time of the child's fifth birthday. The Feinstein Index, as it came to be called, then also appeared important for determining labor market performance at the age of 26. So there were correlations between the development of a child at 22 months 
before they even start school and their eventual education and employment outcomes at 26. And those were conclusions uh, that uh, were also borne out by the first stage of the Sure Start research. So this evidence appears to reaffirm Keith Joseph's concept, uh, stripped of its rather crude uh, language. Because there is no money around, we know that at the moment, but we can all in our daily lives do early intervention. So if you're in Sainsbury's or you're in the park or wherever, you can do early intervention by smiling at a harassed looking parent, smiling at a child. You know, if you see somebody struggling, um, just acknowledge in a kindly way that they're struggling. You've already done early intervention, okay? We're all part of a community with the parents of all the children who we meet every day on the bus, maybe the scowling teenager. So we do need all the complex early interventions, but you can get in just in your daily life, and, and I find that really exciting. You know, every time we smile at somebody or we gently touch them on the arm, we release a feel-good chemical, oxytocin. So we all need to just, let's start there. <laughs> and then, you know, maybe one day the money will come and we can also do the amazing stuff that we're all doing too. Um, <clears throat> and then we need to shout about this. It's so easy to get ground down. You know, it's really hard at the moment. Um, cutbacks limited resources, we're all getting exhausted and, and worn out by it all. But, you know, everywhere you go, you need to be talking about the importance of early intervention, of just the little things that people can do. The next section has Jane looking at um, epigenetics, early intervention, and the environment. And then we must have a look, listen to Tessa talking about the prenatal environment as well. So early intervention means pre-birth. It means whoever's supporting the pregnant woman and the expectant dad or expectant mum needs to have a really clear understanding of the in utero experience for a baby because that sets up that baby's brain. Okay, so we can't wait now until the baby is born. If the situation is really bad and, and pregnant mum is experiencing a lot of stress, and again, you know, we can think of living, um, you know, a lot of the refugee families who come, they may have lived in a very violent community or in a war zone. We can think of women living in domestic abuse, which increases um, much of the time in pregnancy and post-pregnancy. That's the, those are one of the key times when it will either emerge for the first time because of the attachment needs of the, abuse, of the abuser um, or it will definitely go up because it's a threat. So um, what will happen then, of course, is that the woman will be very stressed a lot of the time. And we also need to think of this in terms of women with, you know, and, uh, I'm far from uh, saying that women should not have amazing careers, but, you know, a very, very stressful jobs then obviously there's going to be a high level of release of stress hormones. And we know that the stress hormones bathe the baby. So the more stressed the woman is, the more she's releasing adrenaline, cortisol, all those um, great chemicals we need if there's an emergency. 
uh, are washing through the baby. And when the baby's brain is beginning to develop, which is around, well, I've read seven weeks and then I've read three weeks, so very early on, <laughs> very early on. Um, that means that that developing brain is being washed by all these chemicals and is going to be a more reactive, more wired, more wary brain. So then the baby will be born into an environment which is potentially just as stressful, so depending on domestic violence or whatever the situation is, substance misuse, homelessness, um, trying to flee a war-torn country. So there's more stress. And the baby, of course, is already quite difficult to manage because they are so wired that they are the baby who's really hard to soothe. And um, the caregiver may already be distant and only be able to offer quite erratic care. So the early relationship and the early environment are not conducive to great brain development. So again, being able to get in at that point giving information to parents and carers about the importance of the fact that you are growing that baby's brain. It's, it's a big responsibility, isn't it? But, but that's the reality. They are growing the baby's brain. Um, I'm sure that would make a huge difference um, because parents want the best for their children. So early intervention means pre-birth. It means whoever's supporting the pregnant woman and the expectant dad or expectant mum needs to have a really clear understanding of the in utero experience for a baby because that sets up that baby's brain. Okay, so we can't wait now until the baby is born. If the situation is really bad and, and pregnant mum is experiencing a lot of stress, and again, you know, we can think of living, um, you know, a lot of the refugee families who come, they may have lived in a very violent community or in a war zone. We can think of women living in domestic abuse, which increases um, much of the time in pregnancy and post-pregnancy. That's the, those are one of the key times when it will either emerge for the first time because of the attachment needs of the, abuse, of the abuser, um, or it will definitely go up because it's a threat. So um, what will happen then, of course, is that the woman will be very stressed a lot of the time. And we also need to think of this in terms of women with, you know, and I'm far from uh, saying that women should not have amazing careers, but, you know, a very, very stressful jobs, then obviously there's going to be a high level of release of stress hormones. And we know that the stress hormones bathe the baby. So the more stressed the woman is, the more she's releasing adrenaline, cortisol, all those um, great chemicals we need if there's an emergency uh, are washing through the baby. And when the baby's brain is beginning to develop, which is around, well, I've read seven weeks and then I've read three weeks, so very early on, <laughs> very early on, um, that means that that developing brain is being washed by all these chemicals and is going to be a more reactive, more wired, more wary brain. So then the baby will be born into an environment which is potentially just as stressful, so depending on domestic violence or whatever the situation is, substance misuse, homelessness, um, trying to flee a war-torn country. So there's more stress. And the baby, of course, is already quite difficult to manage because they are so wired 
that they are the baby who's really hard to soothe and um, the caregiver may already be distant and only be able to offer quite erratic care. So the early relationship and the early environment are not conducive to great brain development. So again, being able to get in at that point, giving information to parents and carers about the importance of the fact that you are growing that baby's brain it's, it's a big responsibility, isn't it? But, but that's the reality. They are growing the baby's brain. Um, I'm sure that would make a huge difference um, because parents want the best for their children. And what they tell us is that the foundations of many aspects of adult behaviour are influenced by the prenatal environment and developed in early childhood. That's very simple, but it is becoming an incontrovertible fact. Cognitive skills, emotional well-being, social competence, sound health, educational attainment, and so forth, all help a child and their later adult selves adapt to their environment, their school, their workplace, adult uh, and adult life, and are crucial to them forming relationships, whether with a partner, family, or friends, and later in life with their own children too. The research illustrates that well-meaning attempts to understand and tackle social problems have often failed because they've taken little account of the fact that children's early experiences lay the foundation for their future development and how they process future challenges. And this is a fundamental issue. The way people respond to situations is rooted in their early years a time when they rarely have contact with social services unless there are very significant problems in their lives. The period between conception and two years old is vital to a child's neurological development. Now in this section we hear a bit from firstly Tessa on brain development and then the first contribution of many I assure you to come from Lynn MacDonald on brain development as well. There is evidence that complex, dynamic social emotions, including pride, shyness, showing off, are felt and expressed by infants with a powerful effect on others. Children are born highly interactive and impressionable. During the first few years of life, this growth of new brain cells continues. Initially, the brain has a plasticity, meaning the child's brain is more receptive to change, and that allows external experience to affect the way the brain develops. But it will reduce later, so there is a period of opportunity, but it's not limitless. The experiences of the child during this time play a significant role in how neural pathways will be established and the structure and function of the child's brain a great number of external influences affect this brain development. And this is where the imperative about attending to this evidence about early childhood development becomes universal. And I saw this last summer when I visited Malawi on a field visit with Sightsavers. Malawi, a country where 50% of children are stunted by the time they're five. And their subsequent development given that adverse start 
is so heavily compromised. So sufficient nutrition and sleep are important. Maternal stress during pregnancy can have effects on brain development. Neglect, abuse, and other forms of maltreatment can have serious detrimental effects on the neurological development of the child and result in psychological problems. For children who are repeatedly exposed to adverse experiences, this stress can become toxic and impact lastingly on their future mental and physical health. Adults like us have 80 billion neurons. Maybe some of you have 90. That's about the range. But children, infants are born with 200 billion, and they lose them. It's just the opposite of what we thought. They lose their capacity. I now want to start a club saying, save the neurons. <laughs> save the neurons, because all these babies have capacity beyond belief. And so it's like, oh my goodness, they're losing it. As we watch, they're just drifting away. The neurons are being pruned. That's the word they use, neurological pruning. And so what stays is the ones that have been used. Now, if you're into child neglect, guess what? A lot of pruning happens because not much has been experienced. So it becomes the worst. And all the research shows that neglect has the worst outcomes. It's more related to aggression for delinquents, more related to early, childhood, uh, early uh, pregnancy, more related to so many different things than anybody thought. And 50% of our referrals in child protection in England are for neglect. Right, in this section, it was interesting because we're gonna to listen to Jane first, talking about the toxic trio and self-medication due to trauma. Then it moves on to a substantial contribution from Lynn McDonald when she talks of toxic stress, mediating that stress, and also interventions that can happen. So let's have a listen to that. So talking about the, the toxic trio, again, this is... I'm going to drop the microphone now. This is something which um, I'm sure you will all come across um, in your daily work. Okay, so um, still in this, in this day and age, some people seem to... You know, they'll talk about a family and they'll say, oh, yeah, there's domestic violence. Um, so they'll talk about domestic violence, and often they, they will miss a trick sometimes that you rarely, if, if you're dealing with a family or a child where you know there's been domestic violence, there will invariably um, always be the other two. So there will be some level of substance misuse, which I would call self-medication, um, because if you live in a very, very traumatic house every day, so in your own mini war zone, then you will need some strategy to cope and to not feel it as intensely as, as it is. And, and then post-domestic violence, so post-domestic abuse, again, you know, that level of trauma um, is in the children and the adults, and the adults can access um, cigarettes, alcohol, drugs, what, whatever they need to access to self-medicate. Children can't do it as easily, but they actually will find a way of self-medicating because, again, to live in that stress and to be carrying it in your body and your brain, um, you know, for a child, they've got to do something to alleviate it. So there might be the child who, 
You watch all the children in the playground and they're the one who's doing the things that make you just almost faint. It's so dangerous. Um, you know, that they will, they will uh, maybe restrict their food or eat too much food. They'll just have to find some way in their own little lives to not feel the pain of the trauma and the um, attachment loss some way. So look at those things in that light. It's really, really helpful. Um, so again, when, I mean, when the families that you come across, these are some of the common behaviours that I'm sure that you will recognise. Um, so again, if, if, you, if you're working with a family or you know that the parents um, have experienced some form of trauma themselves, then they will be distracted by their own trauma. So those frustrating times when you're um, meeting a parent or you're trying to work with them or a carer and you struggle to understand why they just cannot and will not focus on their child... Um, it's just, you know, that's their own trauma which is blocking that. And so that's what the child will, will grow up with. Maybe very erratic care. Somebody who's just emotionally not there for them. You know, they might get them up. A, a lot of the um, people I've supported, you know, they'll get their children up every day. They'll get them dressed. They'll get them breakfast, which is amazing given what they've all been through. But they don't have the capacity to be emotionally available to their child, which then perpetuates the trauma. So these kind of behaviours are, are very familiar, but they're very, very damaging. And as I say, you know, once the worst has happened, um, we're in the post-period, I think often... I mean, I probably was guilty of it myself, thinking, oh, thank goodness, they're all safe now. But actually, that's when the trauma will, will come out, particularly of the children. And very excitingly now, um, there's so much brilliant science around that, that underlines like never before the importance of environment to a developing child. Okay, so um, ACE brings together the work that we do in child protection with health because women who have a cumulative impact, more than one, two, three, four, five, up to seven, there are only seven of these, and if they have them happen under the age of seven, <clears throat> the original research showed they had more cancer, more hypertension, more strokes. They had serious chronic illnesses. They went into the emergency room more often. This is totally different from what I ever thought. I always thought it might be showing up in depression, anxiety, but not in health, stroke, cancer, shocking. So suddenly, everybody's turning to us. How do we reduce ACE? It's got huge lifelong implications for huge costs in society. So it's a time of very important for this kind of event today to be held so that we become aware of these issues. Now I'm going to talk about the meerkat. I think it's a little different from the amygdala because I think it's um, the cortisol level. So um, that's my thought. So it turns out that the mediating variable for the adult health outcomes of ACE is toxic stress. So it's the accumulation of multiple adverse childhood experiences. One is bad, two is worse, three is worse, four and five, up to seven. And you know what they are? They're child neglect, emotional and physical, child abuse, emotional and physical, sexual abuse, a parent with depression, and a parent with addiction. That's the seven toxic lists. 
the more you have of those, it happened to you under the age of seven, the more likely you're going to have a huge devastating amount of toxic stress. And that is what we have to intervene to stroke and touch and respond to. So the toxic stress is the, is the um, impact, and we only have been able to do this since we could measure cortisol levels with saliva tests, something a no social worker would ever dream of doing, but I'm trying to apply money right now. I want money to do saliva tests because you can test cortisol, and I want to test some of my interventions to see if they do, in fact, bring the cortisol levels down. So stress is the thing that we have to be worried about. And stress affects the brain and alters the chemical neurotransmitters related to violence. As we heard, dopamine, stress changes the gene expression. So we heard about that. If you're in a family of high violence, your gene will express. If you're a calm family, it won't. Stress in cortisol levels is sustained over time and damages the child's brain and their body organs. And that's why the adults get sick and have cancer at the age of 47 middle class people. High stress causes low immune system, and later the children get sick more often and heal more slowly. High stress puts the children in survival mode. Like you said, that meerkat can't pay attention to learning to read and write. How can they? Their survival is at stake. So they're into a survival mode. They can't do anything else but be scanning the horizon for possible abuse. And neglect shoots the cortisol level up just as much. This is something nobody really knew. The cortisol level for neglect, turning away from a child, shoots the cortisol level up. They did the baby buggy study, maybe you heard about. Baby buggy study, which way do you think the cortisol goes up for the baby who's being pushed in a buggy? Is it when the baby is being pushed in the buggy and looks at the cars zooming by and looks at the people's backsides and looks at the you know crowds? Or is it when they are facing their parent who's pushing the buggy and looking at them. Which one shoots up the cortisol? Can you guess? So it turns out now we can start measuring these things and they can inform our practice. So the high stress is mediated by only one thing. And fortunately for social work, it's not a pill. The high stress is mediated by one caring, sustained relationship in the natural environment. It's not us. It's not the professional. We move on, we go to new jobs, we disconnect. This was a big surprise to me that it wasn't us. Our work has to be to foster the natural relationships in the environment so we can find that caring relationship and make it really powerful for the child. So this is our business. Our business is to find the sustaining caring relationships that can bring down the toxic stress, soothe the meerkat. So <clears throat> it turns out that one little session of just 15 minutes of one parent sitting with one child and responding to the child's needs and tuning into that child over an eight-week period can massively drop their symptoms and massively drop their cortisol levels. It's a very simple intervention that we can use in programs, and I'll talk about a couple of programs later. Just 15 minutes a day can actually reduce that toxic stress if it's done in a particular way, meaning don't criticize, don't boss, don't teach, but instead follow the lead of the child. Be responsive to the child, tune into the child. 
All of this we can do, and it's not a pill. It's relationship building. Right. This next section is Jane talking about the trauma journey and working with traumatized parents. And then she goes on to discuss, obviously, something that's been threaded all the way through the conference so far, and that's attachment. So let's have a listen to that. Now, we need to understand a child's trauma journey, and we need to understand a parent's trauma journey. It's, it's the first thing I try and do, you know, once I've met a parent once or twice and feel that I've established some bond with them, I then try very gently to explore, so what has led them to this point? And likewise with the children and the young people I work with. Because until you understand the kind of trauma they've experienced, then you're kind of down the wrong end of things. If you just go in down the firefighting end, their behavior won't make sense. So the parent who arrives in a massive rush every week, um, you know, very stressed, rattles off this long list of, of terrible things that have happened all week long, and, you know, you've got an hour to do a piece of work with them. It takes three quarters of an hour for them to settle down so you can even begin the work. When you understand how traumatized their brain is, then you can put in strategies to help them just to get calmer when they come in the room so that you can do the really important work that you need to do. And any situation, you know, we're all professionals, and any situation where we meet with parents and carers, there's always a power imbalance. So, you know, it's going to be stressful for them anyway, and then if they're traumatized as well, then it's even more stressful, and the likelihood is that they will not be in the part of their brain to be at all receptive to what you're saying. So it's really useful. And, and likewise with the children as well. So always think about some way of gently engaging and connecting first before you try and launch into whatever you've come there to do that day. You know, a lot of the problems that we have in all of society, it's all grounded in early attachment. So what we're talking about is that basic relationship that a child forms with their initial caregiver and we start the, the bonding process starts pre-birth where the baby's system synchronizes with the mother's heartbeat her breathing all that kind of thing her sleep patterns so that's kind of the beginning of a bonding process and then as soon as the baby's born it's about the relationship between the mum and um, baby, okay, or whoever is the main carer at that point. And that's how babies learn about themselves. So if they have a carer who is very distracted by substance misuse, um, domestic abuse, or is mentally ill and is not emotionally available to the child, so when the child is distressed or worried or on some level has some emotional dysregulation, they can't come and soothe that child's brain in, in a sense, then the child grows up with higher levels of anxiety of um, a sense of insecurity and unpredictability, which going back to our, our stress hormones means that they have much higher levels of all the stress hormones um, and that then makes their brain even more reactive so you can see it's a kind of, um, you know, a, a circular thing, really. If it, if it all happens pre-birth and then post-birth, the caregiver is not really available to the child and their brain is already much more wired, they're, they're more difficult 
um, you know, child, they might cry a lot more. They might be harder. One of the parents the other day I was speaking with, she said to me, um, actually, I do remember when he was a baby, um, he just didn't seem to want to be soothed by me. She said, and even though now I know it, it, was, it was stupid, she said, I felt rejected by my baby because I would pick him up and I would try to comfort him and do all those things. And because it never seemed to work, she said, in the end, I kind of stopped in a way, you know, it just, it just wasn't there. So again, supporting somebody who is, is wanting to do the right thing, but has this, um, you know, traumatized little baby is, is going to change so much for the parents' experience, um, but also for the baby. Now, when Tessa Joel was in Parliament, early on, she was the one that started the Sure Start programme. So she talks about that and talks about the Sure Start results. So let's have a listen to Tessa on that. So let me um, just talk um, a bit about Sure Start. I hope you've heard most of what I've already said, which underlines the importance between children um, in early infancy and their parents, the need for this strong and intimate bond between a mother and child. And I always say I want to dedicate Sure Start to my own health visitor, who taught me a lot about uh, this, um, <clears throat> taught me a lot about the importance of just allowing that time with your baby in which things happen, um, and uh, time which is undisturbed by sort of external pressures. And uh, more or less, although I had three young stepchildren, um, I was lucky enough uh, to be able to have enough of this. Now, David Blunkett, with whom I worked uh, very closely on Sure Start, and I were greatly concerned about the quality of support that was available for those new mothers who had nobody to tell them what a great job they were doing with their babies. And what is it if you go to the home of a new baby and their young mother, and there are no flowers, there are no cards, there's nobody saying, um, oh, he's put on an ounce this week, you are doing well, just keep going. And so you give up breastfeeding, so you become depressed, so you withdraw from your baby, and you immediately get into this um, cycle that it's so hard um, to break out of. So David Blunkett and I really sh saw Sure Start as an intervention to address that, and particularly to support those new mothers uh, often lacking in the confidence to be their children's first teacher, to enable them to enjoy their babies and also to create that space to teach their babies. So the early conception of Sure Start was very, very simple. And um, it was an extraordinary business actually uh, creating it, uh, getting the money. Um, I mean, it was unprecedented to get a quarter of a billion pounds to spend on um, support for tiny babies and their mothers. But that's what Gordon Brown agreed to. And in the treasury of all places, we had these champions of Sure Start who absolutely got it from a very early stage. And I think without that, without um, uh, the partnership between David and I, 
I don't think Sure Start would have developed in quite the same way it did. But government's very bad at handling um, what I would call relational programs. And it's much easier to, um, as it became, to describe Sure Start as a welfare to work program. So we had this, um, this contradiction where Sure Start had been created as a program to develop this intense bond between mothers and their babies. But it evolved in time to become a welfare to work program for those mothers uh, where their children would be looked after in children's centers while they were at work. And um, I'm just uh, now chairing a commission on um, children and childcare in uh, two London boroughs. And Naomi Eisenstadt, who I appointed to run Sure Start, um, shares my concern that childcare must be des designed uh, to create the possibility of mothers working and finding a route out of poverty. But it isn't good for children, very, especially very little children, to be away from their mothers for too long. So Sure Start very quickly showed uh, results. I mean, less uh, sort of less broadly based than the California study. But in 2010, Sure Start local programs in the evaluation by Birkbeck University showed that mothers across the population in Sure Start areas engaged in less harsh discipline. They provided more stimulated uh, home learning for their children. They also reported providing a less chaotic home environment. And this was a, a particularly important finding given the high proportion of single mums. Uh, and they found that home was less chaotic for their boys. They reported having better life satisfaction. And also, and interestingly, the likelihood of children being overweight was also reduced. All right, we're now going to uh, listen to Lynn MacDonald. Now, Professor MacDonald here, this is a, 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 a sizable piece of her speech, looking at protective factors, how to develop these protective factors, and a very detailed explanation of the program that she instigated that had some startling success. Lynn MacDonald. So this is my issue. We must build protective factors against stress for all babies. Strengthen the family, reduce conflict and stress, strengthen the parent-child bond and attachment. I think you can repair attachment up to the age of six or seven. Increase parent-to-parent -parent friendships, empower the parent groups and social inclusion, and ties of the parent with the community. Those are the protective factors that I'm aiming at in my interventions. Now, I, I have programs that are theory-based. All of them have at least 10 theories in them so they can have huge impact. And one theory I like is the social ecological theory of child development, which says you can't just work with the child alone. The child alone, you can give a pill, but the child alone is not in relationship. You have to work with the child in relationship, and that includes then, of course, the first level, which is the family, the immediate family. And we play games with this about how many levels there are, but the key thing is to have relationships, at least one, that's highly caring and supportive and responsive. When the child moves into school or daycare or other institutional groups, you have to work with them as well 
because they're also influencing the child in terms of toxic stress and potential relationships. And then you have to work with the community. So all my programs are multi-level with representatives from each of those domains. And all of this can be informed and applied by policy. So now is my next section, which is how to do it. So the first program I developed was Safe at Home for children under court orders who were zero to five to be removed. And I made a deal with the um, courts that if I could have three months of intensive intervention by social workers <clears throat> and parent aides, that I thought I could deter some percentage of those who were going to go into foster care for the safety of the child. And they were willing to make a deal with me and let me have three months. And I had enough money for a year so I could present the data then to inform policy. And what we did was we took every day, every day, a parent aide was trained to go to the home and listen to the parent for 15 minutes. That's the Deborah Bell research. And then ask the parent to play with the child for 15 minutes in this responsive play way where they couldn't be directive or critical and they just had to be responsive. But it's so hard to do that the coach was there right next to them on the floor patting the parents saying you're doing a good job but how about you know trying this and that. Just coaching them, talking to them, giving them support to try this. We did it every day for three months. Now remember the Deborah Bell research. Neglect, 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 abuse. Neglect, 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 abuse. What's missing is the middle part. The middle part, which is the responsive part of parenting. So neglect is not so good, and abuse is not so good. So what we did right in that program was to make sure that that child, that every day, that middle part that had not been there. And we also had family therapists involved, pediatricians. We had a whole team. We did tests of the parents' mental health and depression levels. We did all kinds of other things. Most of them had their um, ex, uh, their, the parent of their child, in jail at the time for drugs. So we were really into the center of the storm that we all know about as social workers. And our biggest intervention was to put in that middle part. And so I want you all to practice that with me. It's hard to believe this is, could matter. But this is another person's research, John Gottman, who did 30 years of research on what are the core features of interactional dyads. That's like a parent and child or a husband and wife. How can you categorize and take a huge amount of complexity and put it right into some simple terms that everyone can understand and get coding validity on analysis of videotapes. And this guy's really famous now. You may have heard of him. People fly from all over the world with their partner to see whether they're going to have a good marriage or whether they're going to end up in divorce. John Gottman, he made a lot of money on this in the end. But his research in the beginning was really good. And he said that there are three fundamental bid sequences. That's what it's called. So the child does a bid. Hey, mom. The parent has three possible responses. One is a responsive response to the bid. That is, hi, mom. Uh, can I tell you something? Yes, honey, what do you want to tell me? Okay, just normal, responsive bid. The second one is, hi, mom, and she turns away. Okay, very simple. But you can see it in a coding system that all of us could code it the same. It takes many forms, looking at the iPhone, running for the whatever. The third one, hi, mom, attack. So it's three fundamentally different responses to a bid from another person. 
first one is an appropriate, responsive, polite, respectful, friendly. Those are the ones you want. The second one is turning away, not responding, looking up, being distracted. That's neglect. Third one is attack, which we're going to call abuse for the moment. I don't want you to actually abuse your neighbor when you do this. I want you to just practice. And I'm going to use an English one. Would you like a cup of tea? That's your, going to be your bid. And uh, I want you to just do it with the person next to you. So if there are uh, four in a row, you're going to do fine. But if there's an uneven number, you're going to have to search around for someone. We're just going to do this for a couple minutes. I want each of you to do all three and then switch. So each have the experience of being attacked for a simple question, would you like a cup of tea? This might be very traumatic, and we have a tra trauma expert here <laughs> who can talk with you in the back about your feelings afterwards. Um, okay, let's do it. You're going to notice it everywhere. Once you're, those were when you were in the dyad. When you're in the diet, it's harder to notice, but you can experience the feeling. But as a social worker, you're going to be watching this. You're going to be watching. You have to sit back and watch the interactive sequences at the micro-sequence level to see the percentage of turnaways versus attacks versus responsiveness. And that can go into your court report. Okay, so this is a way of beginning to apply theory into practice. I started out with one family at a time. We were able to reduce 70% did not go to foster care, and we monitored them for three years. This was a simple human intervention. You can do this. You can you know, set it up and, and have it be um, something you refer people to or do it yourself. Then I got interested in more numbers and what can we do with 10 families at a time. And that's when I developed the multifamily groups for zero to three. So the team, in order to change this, this is all I'm interested in, is to change how this relationship happens. And so with the multifamily group, what we did was we brought together a collaborative team that crossed over the sectors of addiction, mental health, to make sure that people with those problems got referred. This is before I knew about the ACE research. Child protection social work, these can all be court ordered. Home health visitor who knows about infant massage, which is the most researched intervention with the best outcomes for cortisol reduction. And then we had service users on the team. Three, we had fathers who had fathered a teenage pregnancy. We had grandmothers and we had the mothers themselves. They are on the planning team and they do the implementation. So it's a partnership between several different sectors of the community and three out of the six on the team are service users in the local community who know exactly what's going on. And that's why we get a lot of fathers coming because we have fathers on the planning team. What we do then is they relate to the parents, the adults, and the adults relate to the babies and the children. So we have a bunch of family therapy um, exercises that take place in small groups at different family tables. That's different formations of tables for families. And rather than having a single lecture, it's all experiential learning with repetition every week to build those neural pathways. And what we do then is the team, including service users, coaches the parent and tells them things that they might be doing with their kids. So the parents have a chance to do something totally different from maybe anything they've ever seen or experienced as they grew up. And these are all based on several different research studies. That's part of the program, and we do a lot of crafts. We do crafts. We ask people to tell about their crafts. 
how do they relate to babies. Then we have groups, not just family time, but we have group time. We have a group for fathers. Often in the States, the fathers are you know, in big trouble with the law, with gangs and other things. And it's just amazing to see them come and bounce their babies on their knees and sing Old MacDonald Had a Farm. I mean, this is corny. But we're trying to build the positive neural networks for those babies so they have something they can turn to. We never talk about child abuse and neglect. Of course, we're mandated reporters. So if we see evidence, then we're going to report them. But we're focusing on building the positive neural networks, which can balance out the neglect, neglect, neglect abuse by having stuff in the middle. So we have um, the groups. The grandmother's groups are fabulous. It's the intergenerational stuff you talked about. They talk about what their childhood was like, and they talk about do they want their daughter's baby to have that same thing. So it gets really heavy, and those are all led by the social workers. Then, at the same time, we're trying to build the one-to-one -one support for the teen moms so they have somebody to turn to that they can rely on as their buddy for that 15-minute Deborah Bell time to support them. We have that in the program every week. And then we have the parents do either the response to special play for 15 minutes, being coached and observed by a whole team of people, and they don't mind it. They can see the changes in their babies. It's incredible. They get so moved by the changes that come from this simple thing that they're doing themselves. Their parental efficacy levels go sky high because they take responsibility for what they're doing. No one's lecturing. It's all them doing. And this is magic. And we do infant massage for zero to one, and we do special play, which is that responsive free play for over twos. And so what we're building is a massive number of invisible relationships in eight short weeks, and then it moves to monthly meetings, which are called boosters, for two years to keep those gains. And I'm going around saying we're building social capital, and we just finished a randomized controlled trial that proved that FAST is building social capital with a population of 3,000 families and 52 schools and five-year-olds. Now what happens in the Baby FAST program for zero to three? We do crafts, we do sing-alongs, parents share songs that they were sung when they were babies. We do mixed group communication scenarios where they discuss um, possible things that could go wrong and how to develop judgment and voice, which is really important for adolescent girls. And then we have um, nurture the nurture time. We have the um, uh, new mother get some massage on the, her hands so that she can be prepared for giving massage. So you always have to nurture the nurture before you ask the nurture to deliver. And then you have winning. We have a fixed lottery where people, everybody has a chance to win. And then um, they have to cook the next week. So it's reciprocity. We're trying to teach reciprocity. It's in every culture. It's also a way of getting high retention rates to come back. And then we have food, of course. And we put it at the end because otherwise people come and eat and leave. So um, this program has only been done in England in a few places, Liverpool and Lewisham two of the highest rates of teenage pregnancy in England, I thought I'd try there. But I'm really glad to be presenting it because I think it's something that might be uh, of interest to take up. So one of the things we're finding out is new research on just the impact of two hours of positive emotion when not interrupted by any stress or hassle. That's for any of us. After you have two hours of positive emotion, you get more curious and you get more sociable. And I just read that research. It's new research, but I thought, oh, maybe that's what we've been doing all along. So public space is important for blocking family conflict. 
And having a lot of other people around helps to block it. But you can't just block family conflict. You have to introduce positive things to do. Otherwise, people are left without alternatives that they're familiar with. So in the social ecological relationships, we are building positives towards the child with positive parenting across the board. These are three generational groups, and I'm glad to have people know more about this very important intervention. The final section that I've included here is Dame Tessa Jowell talking about the international perspective and giving a call to action for politicians and public, pressure groups and professionals in this country to make sure that early intervention doesn't fall off the agenda, doesn't get caught up in the political kind of maelstrom or doesn't fall by the wayside. So this final section is Dame Tessa Jowell. I'd like, just before we uh, break for questions, to um, say a few words about the global campaign to ensure that as we look towards the new Millennium Development Goals, uh, we have a new way of approaching and thinking about um, early childhood. Early childhood development is a priority framed in the 1989 UN Convention on the Right of Children. And it's expressed in this way. Children have the right to live, survive, and develop their personality, talents, mental and physical abilities to their fullest potential. Who would disagree with that? And we've made some strides internationally. But to, but to be honest, there is a huge way to go. And particularly frustrating when the evidence of harm and the easy reach of a solution are so close to each other. For instance, in Malawi, which I referred to earlier, um, where 90% of health spending is donor funding, 50% of children are stunted. Their stunting would be prevented by fortifying the porridge, which is, for many of them, their only meal of the day. So this is why getting early intervention into the Millennium Development Goals may seem like a rather sort of, you know, galactic um, uh, ambition, but it's so important in framing the way money comes and the priority attached to it to these tiny communities across uh, the, developing, um, the developing world. So we have uh, the evidence the price we pay for not following that evidence um, is expenditure of billions of dollars uh, or pounds uh, tackling problems uh, later on, tackling problems downstream. And we've seen so clearly um, the cost-benefit uh, that can be uh, achieved. So the global campaign is seeking to continue focus on child survival and later intervention while also recognizing the complementary and reinforcing nature of early intervention in childhood development. We will, I think, um, bring all this to a conclusion at the UN um, Assembly in September this year. Earlier, I touched on the cycle of deprivation and in many low-income countries, as we know, we face different challenges. And I just want to touch very briefly on the continuing challenge of forced marriage. 
14 million girls under the age of eight marry every year. I do a lot of work in India, and this is part of the fear of uh, daily life of many uh, young Indian girls. 27 of these young girls are married every minute across the developing world. So in the time I've been standing here talking to you, 1,200 girls under the age of 18 will have been forced to get married. Early and forced marriage leads to a negative cycle where the young bride is more likely to be violently or, or, or sexually abused, more likely to be illiterate, more likely to have poor sexual and reproductive health. And you can see then how the cycle uh, continues. So the international context frames what we have to do um, here at home. I hope that one of the early uh, steps that can be taken is the reframing of Sure Start to once again focus on these, uh, the, what's called the critical thousand days from conception to uh, very early childhood. But like um, so much major change, to create this virtuous circle, we need um, a chorus of voices. There's no point uh, that there is, I think it's fair to say, a cross-party consensus in Westminster about the case for this. And a significant number of parliamentarians have become very interested and persuaded by the effects of early intervention. But politics and political decisions are notoriously short-term. And when you look at the benefits that may be reaped in 25 years' time from, uh, from intervention in supporting young mothers and their new babies now, um, how many general elections will be fought and won in the intervening time? So in addition to backing the evidence, I would call on all of you, the families that you work with, your professional colleagues, to join that loud chorus of voices to say that we owe it to these children. We owe it to these young mothers who are ambitious for their children, but without the means, in many cases, to give effect to uh, that ambition on their own. We owe it to them for this not just to be a kind of hit and run, a bit of money this year, feel good, and then on to the next thing. But as a country, we have to make uh, the commitment to this long-term investment in the health, well-being, and healthy development of tiny babies and their mothers. And uh, in due course, we can perhaps have less hand-wringing about obesity, about feral children, and about uh, that young man in prison who at 27 is about to become a grandfather. We have the answers. We just have to apply the solutions. Thank you. Well, there we are, podcast 26. Many thanks, firstly, to all the people that came to that conference. It was just magnificent. It was one of the best conferences I think I've ever been involved with. Thanks to the speakers. I hope the flavour that we gave you reflected a bit, at least, of the overall day. We're going to have more of these. It's got to be uh, something that we repeat because it was just so popular. Now, you can catch it on Social World Podcast. You can catch it on iTunes. You can look for us tweeting at, at Dave Niven or um, Podfeed, wherever. Just have a listen, but give us your feedback. 
SpeakPipe, that one-click service just beside the blog or the podcast, that lets you have your say, and uh, all things being equal, I'll include it in the next podcast, which incidentally will feature an interview with Des Holmes, who's the Director of Research and Practice at Dartington. And that is a really magnificent uh, operation down there, and uh, they do an awful lot of good work, so I'm looking forward to that one. But for now, thank you very much for listening. See you next time.